find the book of Haggai, that's going to take you a few minutes probably. Old Testament, to orient you, third from the last book of the Old Testament. It's only two chapters. It's really tiny. It's between the two Z books, Zechariah and Zephaniah. Um, <clears throat> when I was a kid, um, I grew up in the muscle car era. Um, if you don't know what that is, it means cars that go fast and make a lot of noise and just rumble when they sit at a traffic light. And uh, guys, not me, of course, but the guys used to actually race on the roads. And uh, so I always imagined myself uh, being a motorhead and being able to build a, a hot rod. Actually, when I was a teenager, before I could drive, um, I subscribed to Hot Rod Magazine, and I, I, I thought I'd get an old chassis of an old Ford from the early 20s someday and rebuild it. And I, this magazine would have detailed articles of how to uh, drop in a high-performance transmission and how to put in this and that and the other thing. And I thought if I read these articles, you know, I would become this awesome mechanic. <clears throat> and uh, so then I, I started driving, and the first car I drove was my dad's 1955 Chevy Bel Air. And that was a uh, straight six-cylinder, three on the tree. We called it three gears on the column. And I eventually totaled that, but that was another story. <laughs> it was a really not nice car. Dad paid $100 for it. It was three or four different shades of blue, <clears throat> different parts of it. And, um, but even today, I mean, that's, that's a, still a very desirable car for restorers. They get a car that looks like this um, out of the junkyard somewhere. Well, there we go. Looks like that, and it may or may not have glass on it, may or may not have tires on it, and they do uh, enough work on it, and they can get it coming to look like this. Yeah, baby. Um, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars later and thousands of man hours later, they can turn that other car into uh, one like this, a restore something that was uh, really nasty. <clears throat> I actually... Um, got my own car, then I got a 57 Chevy, um, which was uh, lame. I mean, it, it had a V8, that was about the only thing I had going for it as far as a muscle car, but it, it was really tame. But I, I wanted to make something out of it. And so um, back in the day, getting the back end of the car up in the air was a thing. And I couldn't afford to do it properly, which means putting air shocks on the back. And so I, I bought shackles. Anybody know what a shackle is? Other than handcuffs, it's a different kind of shackle. Uh, it's basically little metal bars. You take the leaf springs off the back of your car and you put, the sh you put this metal bar where the leaf spring was installed and then down here you put the pin in the leaf, the leaf spring. Anyway, so I was gonna do that. <clears throat> Took me six days to do that, working every night at it. Go to work in the day, come home, and work at it at night. And the thing must have been in a flood somewhere. Every, the rust was of, a, of an elevated degree. And so I couldn't get the bolts off. I'd work and work at this. Anyway, I had that car for all of five weeks. Wasn't a good car. Um, everything bad that could happen to a car, I had happened to me pretty much in five weeks. But anyway, I learned one thing with that car. I am not ever going to be a mechanic. 
I mean, the extent of my uh, mechanical skills today, they start with opening the hood and end with filling the washer fluid. That's it. I have achieved all of the skill that I'm ever going to have. And Betty can't understand that because her dad would, was a pretty good do-it-yourselfer who put on brake pads and so forth. And I didn't even know until my son said um, to me a couple months ago, he said, Dad, we're going, this, we're going to have this family vacation. And he knew I needed brake pads on my car. He said, he said, bring your car. He said, we'll just put them on while we're at this house we're renting. And I'm like, oh, I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, he said, no, no, it'll be fine. He said, I've watched lots of videos on YouTube. <laughs> And my son is very good at mechanical stuff, but that's how he learns. Um, so anyway, I agreed to, that we were going to do that. But that was the first I really knew what a brake pad looked like. I mean, I just, I just don't do that stuff. But I love to go to car shows and see this. Why? Because I know what these old cars look like before somebody who knows what they're doing gets a hold of them. They restore them, they lovingly rebuild them and they make what looks like belongs in a junkyard and does look like something, wow, I'd love to have that. If you were here a couple of weeks ago when Mac Cockrell was here from Life Action, remember he talked about a definition of revival? He, he said the first two letters in that word re mean what? Do again, right, do again. And then vive is a word that really appears in a variety of languages. It, it appears in, in Spanish and French and some others as well, I think Italian. And speak of life, the, 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 that root piece of that word means life. And so revive is to do again life or to bring back to life. So revival targets not unbelievers, Remember Mac was talking about in the Bible Belt, they always thought revival was pitch a tent out in front of your church building all through the summer and try to get lost people saved. Revival targets people like me and like many of you who know Jesus Christ to bring life again to us. Do, do, do life again. And so to this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to talk a little bit about revival as we look forward to this uh, revival summit that we're scheduling the end of, of October. And let me just reiterate again, <clears throat> nobody can schedule revival. It is a sovereign work of God. It's a sovereign move of God where he comes and blows in by his Holy Spirit in a way um, that, that's, that's new and fresh and, and different and transforms uh, old things into new. Uh, we can't do that. Now, next week, we're going, to talking about, uh, we're going to talk about some things that we can do to prepare for it and to make it more likely. But ultimately, it's, it's God's work and it's, it's God's decision. Uh, whether we talk about a revival or an awakening, a move of God, renewal, it's all the same thing. And it may come at Keystone two years from now. It may come at the end of October when life action's here. <laughs> Max said when he was here, wouldn't it be great if revival comes in September and life action just comes in in October and kind of cleans up and has the opportunity to kind of, kind of piggyback on what God's already doing. So we understand that this is something we cry out to God for, but God ultimately does. Now, if you were in one of my uh, adult Bible fellowship studies on revival this summer, some of this may be uh, familiar to you. And I want to just mention briefly, as I've been reading about revivals again this, uh, this year, Five basic features that seem to mark them. One is a, a, a new love or renewed love for God. And especially as God defines himself in scriptures rather than some of the caricatures that sometimes Christians have about God. You know, he's kind of, I remember when I was um, 
in my hippie years, they had this song uh, about Jesus that kind of made him out to be little more than a surfing buddy. And, uh, and yet the picture of scripture in scripture is that God is, is not only mighty and all powerful and loving and kind, but that he is holy. In fact, all of his attributes are really are subsumed underneath this attribute of holiness, which means that yes, on the one hand, he's morally perfect, unlike we are, but he's unlike we are. He's very different. Uh, the word other is a great word to describe holiness. And a a new love for God as he is, there's a reason that when people encounter God in the scriptures, there's this kind (gasps) of, and I wonder if that happens to you and I when we open the pages of scripture, when we get on our knees before him, is there this, (gasps) our God is a consuming fire. Do we get terrified like Peter, James, and John did when they were on the mountain with Jesus and they saw him not as he just was walking down the roads with them, but as as he will be in heaven. Is there this, or is there kind of cavalier, kind of casual thought and attitude toward God? So a new love for God, particularly as he is described in scripture. And connected to that, it's inevitable that, that follow, what follows that is a new hatred for sin. A new hatred for sin. God hated sin. Listen, God hated sin so much that he killed his son for you because you and I were sinners. God hated sin so much, he thought it was such a desperate plight that he killed his only son on your behalf. And so we get a new hatred for sin as we see God in his holiness. Third, there's a new longing to pray. New longing to pray. I talked with a lady after the first service who said she was at Wheaton College um, several decades ago when revival broke out there. And she said one of the features that she remembers uh, seeing that was so fixed in her mind is she would walk across campus and there would just be little knots of pe- students praying, two or three or five here and there. But it just seemed like all of academia stopped on Wheaton campus so people could pray. Do you have a, do you have a longing to pray? When God sweeps through in revival, instead of saying, oh, brother, I have to go and spend my two minutes or my 10 minutes praying. Oh, good grief. Instead, there's a like, there's a, I, I got to get to God. I, I, I have, my needs are so great. Uh, he is so great. I can't wait to get God. Fourth, there's a new warmth among believers. A new warmth among believers. This is a feature of the American church that's troubling. And what I mean by that is that we're not so much that way. More and more, we're spectators. We come in and sit. We watch a show, but we don't get to know people. We don't share our lives with them. We don't get in a care group and talk with them and ask them to pray for us, and we pray for them. And, and when revival sweeps through, it's, it's like, wow, I, I kind of forgot that these people are my brothers and my sisters, and what a privilege it is to be in fellowship with them. What a privilege it is to, yeah, worship together on Sunday morning, but to live life together. Not all 400 of us, but, but you know, I got a group of people that I've become close with in the body and, and we're there for each other and we love each other and we show that we love each other and we cry out to God for each other. And man, I, I'm so grateful for this. That, that begins to change in revival. You got a grudge against somebody and you just, you, you've, you solve that in your mind by sitting on the other side of the auditorium or better yet, go to a different service than they do. In revival, you can't live like that. 
There's a new warmth among believers. And last, there's a new urgency to evangelize. New urgency to evangelize. As God really refreshes our hearts and he begins to prioritize his uh, priorities in our hearts, we begin to realize, oh, that's right. I've been left here to leave a mark for Christ. And one of the ways that I do that is talking about the, the gospel that Jesus saved me with. And there are people here that I work with in this planet Earth. There are people here that I go to school with, the people I ride the bus with. There are people here that I live next door to, people that I maybe like or some that I don't like that need Jesus. And when God does a work of grace in my life, that starts to change, that kind of carelessness. I shared with the elders a number of weeks ago how I'm just, I've been so convicted that it's been probably a year and a half, two years since I've shared the gospel with anybody outside of my office. And, and I, would, I would confess to not feeling that urgency during the week. Like, eh, that person that I just saw at the grocery store, just ran into the grocery store, they don't know Jesus. How's that going to change? Who's God got to bring into their lives? Oh, that's right. I was there talking to them. New urgency to evangelize. I want to talk this morning primarily about nominal Christianity. And this is kind of the big idea. When faith becomes nominal, revival is needed. When faith becomes nominal, revival is needed. Now, what I mean by nominal this morning is maybe not what you think. The word typically means in name only. And so it's a word we often use to describe people who are fake Christians, phony Christians. They do all the uh, Christian stuff, but they're really far from God. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. There's also a definition for nominal that means small, shallow, insignificant. So somebody might say to you, um, for a, a nominal fee, I'll do such and such for you, or I'll give you a copy of such and such. Nominal means small. And so we're talking this, talking this morning about people who genuinely are Christians, but that their faith is shallow, their faith, their faith is small. And so again, the big idea is that when faith becomes nominal, revival is needed. Now, you might be asking yourself the question, does Keystone need revival? I mean, are, are, are we scheduling this week because we think we're deficient in some ways and we're desperately needing something uh, it's probably early 2017 when the senior leadership ch- uh, team, Brandon, Charlie, and I started talking about the possibility of bringing life action in. We had a representative come up from Virginia and talk to the three of us over lunch. Um, we uh, uh, kind of discussed the what ifs. We prayed about it and so forth and decided, yeah, this is something that we want to take to the elder team. So we did that. Again, we had John come up from Virginia, talk to the elder team, ask questions. Um, We prayed about it, talked about it several months and decided, yeah, this is something we think that uh, Keystone uh, should do. And that decision was made last fall. And then as an elder team, we began to do some assessment about the church. And we had a retreat last, this past January. And uh, each of the elders had taken a a test or a questionnaire that we filled out, uh, put out by the Evangelical Free Church of America, our denomination, that's a church health survey. And we began evaluating, where's the church weak, where are we strong, where are we kind of in between, and so forth. And to be honest, as we came together as a team, you know, our, our assessments were pretty similar. Not identical, but pretty similar about where we're strong and, and where we're weak. And we started to talk about these things, say, you know, these, these are not just things that are that kind of unimportant. These are some really big deal issues. 
And then it occurred to us as we're talking about what kinds of things do we do to rectify them and so forth. And like, isn't it interesting that we're here making these evaluations and, and three, four, five months ago, whatever it was, we planned this summit where for eight days we're going to kind of put the church agenda on hold, the church life on hold, and ask people to put the other things in their lives on hold. So we just have just a, a week, an entire week, to just hear from God. And we're not saying revival is going to come, but we're going to give, at least create space for God to blow through with a new wind. And isn't it interesting that that was scheduled before we're starting to do some assessments? So I don't know how to answer your question. Um, you might answer it one way. Somebody else might answer it differently. Um, all I know is that I crave what revival brings. Richard Owen Roberts, uh, who's uh, old by now, I heard him preach over 20 years ago. Uh, he's uh, a student of revival, he's done a lot of writing on it. He, he gives a basic and very, but I think powerful definition. Revival is an extraordinary move of God that produces extraordinary spiritual results. Does that sound exciting to you? Does to me. An extraordinary move of God that produces extraordinary spiritual results. And I hope if you haven't started praying for God to do that, that you will. We'll talk more next Sunday about uh, that call to prayer. But this morning, we want to try to do some assessment. It might be assessment about you. It might be an assessment about me. It might be an assessment about the church. It might be assessment about somebody else. Who knows? But I want us to just, I want us to open our hearts and minds to God and say, God, uh, if you want to say something to me this morning that I desperately need to hear for the good of my faith from, for, from here on out, then I want to be open to hear that. So would you pray with me as we invite God to search our hearts and minds? Father, we all come here this morning with different agendas, different thoughts. Some of us are distracted about um, problems in our lives that we don't think have any, any answers. Others of us are, are kind of poised uh, for a place in light where there's something really exciting ahead that we thought would never happen. Maybe it's a, a, a romance. Maybe it's a, a, a new job opportunity. Maybe it's uh, children. Maybe it's, uh, um, well, just an opportunity to experience something we never thought we'd be able to experience. Or maybe it's that we've come with um, just in despair and despondency and depression um, and we, when we look at the world, it's one color. doesn't matter whether we're looking at roses or a sunset or the bottom of a creek. The world is black to us. Um, might be that we are um, here this morning and we are neck deep, maybe even more, in sin. And even though we would like to get free of it, um, there's, there are some things about it that are so captivating that we just can't bring ourselves to do the hard things that are going to lead us to freedom. So I, all of that is your business. I don't know any of this. What I do know is that we are all cut from the same cloth, that we are all men and women, boys and girls, made out of flesh with um, similar kinds of uh, opportunities and similar kinds of... Um, dangers facing us. And I also know that for all of us that know Christ, we, we have desires that go beyond where we're at. 
and we have discouragements that uh, we perhaps think will hound us forever. I pray this morning that you would both pinpoint our challenges and problems as well as begin to open up to us some prospects of hope and that we would not lie to you or lie to ourselves, um, that we would not make pretense, but that we would invite the Holy Spirit to do the kind of work that only he can do for your sake, your glory, and our good as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Haggai, chapter 1, starting, and we're going to read verse 8 and then jump to chapter 2, verse 10. So, quick orientation. This is written, uh, or talking about a time, 520 B.C., when some Jewish people are heading back to, Israel, back to Israel, back to Jerusalem from having lived in Babylon for decades. And uh, God had instructed them to rebuild his temple, which had been destroyed by Babylon the, the previous century. And um, so God's ta- encouraging them, uh, commanding them to rebuild his temple. Verse 8, now go up into the hills, bring down timber and rebuild my house. And then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Just a note there, God desires to be honored. God desires to be honored. When you come in in the morning and the worship team lights up the songs, uh, it's tempting to be focused on whether or not I like that song or uh, whether or not the band is really good this morning or they've got some glitches. And the whole purpose of the band is not to have you grade them. It is to lead you into honoring God. Because he delights to be honored. He delights to be praised. He, he longs to be worshipped. And you say, well, isn't that kind of arrogant? If I were desiring that, there would be something wrong with me. There would be pride. That's true. But you and I are full of flaws and we're warped and we're twisted and we're perverted and we're sinful. And God's not any of that. So why shouldn't sinful, perverted, flawed people worship and lift high the most perfect being in the universe? Chapter 2, verse 10. So there's some problems with the whole, uh, let's build God's temple again. Some problems with that with people. On December 18th, Haggai 2.10, of the second year of King Darius's reign, the Lord sent this message to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of Heaven's armies says. Ask the priests this question about the law. If one of you is carrying some meat from a holy sacrifice in his robes and his robe happens to brush against some bread or stew, wine or olive oil, or any other kind of bread, will it also become holy? The priest replied, no. Then Haggai asked, well, if someone becomes ceremonially unclean by touching a dead body and then touches any any of these foods, will the food be defiled? And the priest answered, yes. Then Haggai responded, well, this is how it is with this people and this nation, says the Lord. Everything they do and everything they offer is defiled by their sin. Look at what was happening to you before you began to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple. In other words, they're getting their act together now, but that wasn't the case. And before this, when you hoped for a 20 bushel crop, you harvested only 10. When you expected to draw 50 gallons from the wine press, you found only 20. I sent blight and mildew, notice that verb, This came from God. I sent blight and mildew and hail to destroy everything you worked so hard to produce. And even so, you refused to return to me, says the Lord. Now, that's the bad news. Here's the good news. Think about this 18th day of December, the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Think carefully. I'm giving you a promise now while the seed is still in the barn. 
You have not yet harvested your grain or your grapevines, fig trees, pomegranates, and olive trees have not yet produced their crops, but from this day onward, I will bless you. And we'll talk a little bit more about those um, concepts next week. I have two basic points I want to um, commend to you this morning. The first one is that Christians naturally drift toward nom- uh, nominalism. Christians naturally, left, left to ourselves, if our faith is just left to itself, we naturally drift toward nominalism. Now let's go back to Haggai's message here and let me tell you a little bit what was going on. So about uh, 70 years before this, um, Babylon comes in and conquers the remaining kingdom, the southern kingdom of Israel, and they tear down the temple, they destroy it, and they take some of the most prominent wealthy people, skilled workers and so forth, they take them back to Babylon. We talk about taking them in captivity, but captivity gives us images of jail cells and so forth. It wasn't like that. They came back, they brought them back to Babylon where they, some of them built houses and they raised crops and had flocks and herds and so forth. Some of them became business people. Uh, some of them like Daniel became the key figures in the, in the government, in this uh, pagan government. And in 19 years before this, Cyrus, who was the king of the Medes and Persians, he came, conquered Babylon without firing a shot. And Cyrus was way ahead of his time. This was a, this was a man who was culturally sensitive. Uh, he, w- he was uh, very intrigued by religions, religious diversity, and he was kind of a fan for, of all of them. And so when he came in, within a year, he invited a lot of people groups to say, basically open the doors of Babylon and said, you can go back to your home countries to your homelands and uh, kind of start your families up there and, and, and uh, raise your flocks and crops and so forth. And one of those groups was the Israelites. Not only was Cyrus opening the doors and saying, go back to your homelands, but he's saying, I'm willing to pay your way. He provided funding for them to go back. And, and he gave to the Israelites, he gave them the uh, objects that had been stolen from Israel 70 years before by the Babylonians, the gold and the silver utensils from the temple and the furniture and so forth. And so Cyrus opens the, the floodgates, and, but hardly anybody went back to Jerusalem. In fact, some commentators think that it was only, only in, in general, the poorest of the poor who went back. Why? Well, because a lot of people had, had put down roots in Babylon, and their kids and their grandkids were there. I'm not moving back to Jerusalem. Some of them had started businesses there and they'd become very prosperous and they're not about to leave that behind and go back to Jerusalem, even though God's call was always back to the holy city. But some of them went back and they started to work on the, uh, on the temple. And again, this is uh, 18 years prior to what we've just read. They start to work on the temple and they, first of all, face some opposition from their neighbors, the Samaritans, the kind of half-Jews that have been intermingled with other races, and they want to help rebuild the temple. And the Israelites say, no, 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 thanks, but no thanks. Well, that didn't go down very well, and the Samaritans now became, instead of their supporters and the offers of help, now became their opponents. And uh, they did everything they could to thwart the rebuilding of the temple, and they wrote letters back to Babylon, back to the Uh, palace saying these guys are really trying to stoke a rebellion Uh, this was happening there was military stuff going on in the region anyway the work on the temple just dropped 
And so now we are 18 years down the road and God's renewing his command to the people, build my house. Why weren't they? Back to chapter one, verse two. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. <clears throat> the, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> the people are saying the time, <clears throat> time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. What do you mean the time has not yet come? God's told you to do it. Supplies have been provided. What's wrong with building the temple now? Verse four or three and four answer. Then the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruin? Nah. Now the truth comes out. It's not a problem that they can't build houses or don't have time to, or to build the house or have time to build the house. They have time to do that for themselves. They have time to build their own homes and they have time to put additions on their homes and improve their homes and panel the rec room and put in a new kitchen and, and put an addition on for a garage. They've got time for all of that. But because they have time for that, they don't have time for God's house. Fundamental principle here. Every choice we make about what we do, by default, we make other choices about what we neglect. Every choice we make about where we go, by default we make other choices about where we're going to neglect going. Every choice we make about someone we see, by default we make choices about someone we're going to neglect. This is, this is inevitable in life. This is how life is. And so, high school kid comes home from school, they've got um, calculus book, God, I don't know what that is. Um, I don't understand that. Calculus book and um, history book here. And, but they've got over here, they've got the computer and Fortnite. And they're like, calculus or Fortnite? Calculus or Fortnite? Actually, they're not doing that at all. They're just going Fortnite. And uh, husband's going hunting instead of doing the family finances. Now, it's not that he can't do both, but he's been neglecting one, and now he's going off on a hunting trip, and he's still neglecting it. You choose to work extra hours on the job, and by choosing that and agreeing to do that, there are other things that are going to be neglected. And, and again, I, I'm not necessarily talking about choosing the good over the bad sometimes we choose the or choosing the bad over the good sometimes we choose the good over the bad i'm just saying this is this is a basic principle of how life operates by choosing one thing we neglect something else and what was being chosen here in jerusalem was to make our houses really nice but we're neglecting God's house. And yet that was the command that he gave us. That, that's when he, we came back from Babylon, this is what he expected us to do, to restart the, the, te the temple worship. It's not the right time to build the temple, but it's the right time to build mine. Now there's kind of a subsidiary question I wanna ask out of this that Haggai was asking. And that is, which is automatic, or maybe we should say which is more automatic, holiness or unholiness? Which for you is easiest, godliness, ungodliness? Which for you is easiest, comes more naturally, sinning or godly living? 
You don't need to answer out loud, but how is it with you? Haggai's asking the questions of the priests that seem very odd to us. Just think about how weird they were. He's asking questions about meat in the robe and dead bodies and all that. And we've got 2,500 years between them and us. And we have really limited understanding about the sacrificial system and so forth. I, I get that that's a problem, but let me, let me do what I can to try to bring us together. <clears throat> so in the Old Covenant, Old Testament times, how did you fix your sin? Jesus didn't. You brought an animal to the temple to be sacrificed, whether that's for you or for one of the members of your family. <clears throat> and we might have the idea that when that bull or that goat was brought, the priest chucked him up on the altar and they lit a match and pff, that's the end of the story. Didn't work quite like that. Part of the animal would be burned, but part of the animal would be kept for the priest. That was their salary. That were their wages. So they would eat some of the meat. And so this is before Tupperware. And so if you're going to carry food from one place to another, you carry it in the folds of your robe. So you got your robe pulled up. There's a piece of meat in here so it doesn't drop in the ground and get dirty. And you're carrying it from one place to another. And Haggai says, okay, what if you walk past some other food here and you touched that food with the outer fold of your robe? Didn't touch the meat, but the fold of the robe touched it. Does that, the meat's holy, it's consecrated. Does that other food become holy by virtue of the fact that the meat was on the other side of the robe and the priest said, no, 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 why? Because the holy hasn't touched the food. Okay, let me ask you a second question. You touch a dead body and the law says that makes you un unholy, unclean for a period of time uh, uh, before you can come back to your family, before you can become part of the people. So you're outside the camp for a season. So you touched a dead body. It might've been your father that passed away. You were preparing the body for burial. And now you get against some food. You're unclean by virtue of having touched the dead body. Does that food become unclean like you are? Now the priests answer differently. Yes. Why? Because the unholy touched. Now here's what he was getting at. There, 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 there's, an, there's an easy thing and there's a hard thing. There's a natural thing and there's an unnatural thing. Holiness does not float downstream. Holiness floats upstream. Unholiness floats downstream. Current carries you along. This is the reason that when your kids start to get old enough that they're out of the house more and more and they're hanging around with other kids, you pray like crazy that they will make the right kinds of friends. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so the night comes when a bunch of them are going to say, hey, Emily's uh, parents are away this weekend, so we're having a big party down at her house Saturday night. Uh, there's gonna be uh, plenty of booze there, and it might, even be, it might even be some pot and some weed, some other stuff there. And the natural carrying down the stream thing is gonna go along with the crowd. Do what everybody else is doing. The unnatural thing, the hard thing, the not easy thing is going to be say, sorry guys, I am out for that. Which is more automatic, holiness or unholiness? Say, I don't, I don't have to try hard to be unloving. Do you? Anybody have to really work it up to be unloving? 
Absolutely not. Man, that's just natural. Somebody does something to me, I don't like you. And if I can hurt you, I will. Oh, it wouldn't be overt. It'd be subtle, like a good Christian should. I don't, I don't have to kind of work something up in myself to neglect to pray. I, do you, I find a thousand reasons not to pray. Anybody that identify? And even when I have good intentions of praying. I mean, I was so convicted. I was, yesterday morning I was praying. Um, and I've been praying for revival for myself for about six, eight months. And um, one of the things that I, I kind of got stuck on yesterday morning as I was praying, you know, God just, does God ever beat you over the head with a two by four? Anybody experience that? Uh, or smaller pieces of wood. I, um, sometimes he wraps them in velvet and sometimes they're just raw. And yesterday it was raw. And uh, he was talking with me about my praying. And I did something yesterday I've never done before. I, I won't tell you what it is, but I put something in my smartphone uh, that I'm not going to be able to miss now. It's just going to pop up every day. And I know there are days ahead when I'm going to be, why did I ever put that on there? But I, I don't need to work up something in myself to neglect to pray. That's just, that's just automatic. I don't, I don't have to reserve time in my schedule to watch porn. I, I, I don't do that. But you know what I'm talking about? None of us have to do that. This stuff pops up on the computer and then you get led to here, to here, to here. We don't have to work at watching porn. We have to work at not watching it. We don't, we don't have to work at uh, holding a grudge. That's just instinctive when somebody does us wrong. But we have to work at going to them and saying, man, pl I, we need to try to reconcile here. Maybe if it's my fault, please forgive me. Or if, or if I think it's your fault, I leave my offering here. But, and then I go to them and I try to reconcile before I put my money in the offering, right? And what Jesus says. But I don't have to work at holding a grudge. That, that's just automatic. That's instinctive. Why are these kinds of things automatic? Because in my flesh... I'm lazy, I'm lukewarm, I'm careless, I'm disobedient, I'm self-indulgent, I'm self-righteous, and I'm bored in my flesh. You say, why are you bored when you read your Bible? Why are you bored when you are on your knees before a holy God who saved you? Why are you bored by that? Why are you bored by Sunday school? Why are you bored uh, uh, coming to a prayer meeting? Why? Our flesh. It's nominal Christianity is automatic. My faith, your faith, left to itself, dies or withers. If we're just carried along by this stream. On the other hand, holiness is calculated. Holiness demands a pursuit. It is a fight against flesh. Don't misunderstand me. I am not talking about an independent fight against flesh. Holy Spirit that lives in the believer. This is, this, is, this, this is the tip of the spear. You can't simply resolve to do something well enough to make it happen. Justification is an independent work of God. You, cannot, you did not do anything to save you except say, yes, God did it all. 
But this sanctification, this as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, this being made more and more in the likeness of Jesus Christ, that's a, that's a joint effort. That's a joint operation between the Holy Spirit and you and your efforts. So it's a pursuit. And brothers and sisters, we need to pursue it. I, I, I just am convinced there's so much about American Christianity that we can, we can kind of muddle along being nice people, going to nice places, hanging around with nice people and convince ourselves this is what Christianity is all about. As long as I don't swear, as long as I give money to the church, as long as I go to church, as long as I, I don't sleep with somebody else's wife or husband, I, I, that's a pretty good deal. And God should be happy. Let me suggest this. That maybe too much of what we experience is simply nominal Christianity. And nominal Christianity has a habit of making the ordinary normal. We have low expectations for ourselves and low expectations for God. When was the last time you asked God for something that you knew this is, this is impossible? When was the last time you asked God for something that you knew was impossible? Or have we so dumbed down our faith that we would, we would only take things to him that might happen through some other means and then we could give God the credit? You, you understand what I'm saying? That we have looked, we, we have accepted that our ordinary lives, this is what it should, this is what should be normal for Christians. Just the ordinary kind of like Will Smith in the movie Hitch. She's seen it. <laughs> Eva Mendez is going down the stairs, leaving him behind. He goes, what if I want extraordinary? And she says, anybody know? No such thing. And I wonder how many of us as Christians have concluded that's true about Christianity. We've got ordinary, is no such thing as extraordinary. We have low expectations of ourselves and low expectations of God. Nominal Christianity makes the ordinary normal. God says to the people in Jerusalem, things haven't been going too well for you because you disobeyed me. Chapter 1, beginning of verse 9. You hoped for rich harvests, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of heaven's armies, while all of you are busy building your own fine houses. It's because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. I have called for a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all your other crops, a drought to starve you, wow, ouch, God, to starve you and your livestock and to ruin everything you have worked so hard to do. Why do you do that? It's trying to get their attention. And then back in chapter two, what we read, verse 14. Uh, I'm sorry, 15. Look what was happening to you before you began to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple. He's reviewing what... what what, uh, what happened in the past 
when they were neglecting the temple. When you hoped for a 20 bushel crop, you harvested only 10. When you expected to draw 50 gallons from the wine press, you found only 20. I sent blight and mildew and hail to destroy everything you worked so hard to produce. Even so, you refused to return to me, says the Lord. God's saying things aren't going well because you disobeyed me. One of the marks of the ordinary Christianity or nominal Christianity is that blessings seem to be rare. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I am not promoting a prosperity theology. The, the, the fundamental flaw in prosperity theology is the belief that God deems every person, every Christian, should be rich, successful, and healthy. And yet, when you read through scriptures, some of the most godly people were sick, poor, and miserable. Thank you, Lord. On the other hand, we should expect as believers that blessings are not rare. That things happen in response to prayers. You do not have because you do not what? Ask. And maybe we don't ask because we don't believe that anything's ever going to change. And the fact of the matter is ordinary faith makes us yawn. Prayers aren't answered. The Bible is boring. Sin is tempting. Church is a duty. And no one around our orbit is drawn to Christ. And we conclude that that must be normal. No one is healed. No one is saved. No one is convicted. No one is called. No one is delivered. And nobody notices because the ordinary has become normal for us. I'm uh, reading for probably the fifth time Jim Cimbala's book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. I told Betty last night, I said, I hate reading that book. <laughs> I'm always convicted by it, but I'm also filled with hope of what could be. When we accept the ordinary as normal, blessings are rare. Radicals among us are rare. How many of us love to read biographies like David Brainerd and Elizabeth Elliot, Francis Chan? Nobody wrote one about him yet, he's still alive, but people we admire. David Brainerd got kicked out of Yale University in 1742 because he had the nerve to suggest one of his professors might not be saved. He repented of that later and admitted that man was, but that was a pretty big deal for Brainerd because he was planning to be a pastor and in the great state of Connecticut of which he was a resident, you could only be a pastor if you uh, graduated from either Yale or Harvard or one of the European universities. And getting kicked out of, Har of uh, Yale didn't leave you much hope of getting accepted at Harvard. He eventually found a godly man to mentor him and take him under his wing. And, and then he got called to the American Indians. And literally worked himself to death. Even after he had proved his mettle and was offered the pulpits of several very successful, very prosperous churches. 
He turned them down and kept working with the Indians, like the Susquehannas, and saw many come to Christ. He put 15,000 miles on his horse in a period of four years, drove himself into the ground, and died at the ripe old age of 29. Or Elizabeth Elliot, who married a kind of a dashing young college student, champion wrestler, and he dragged her to the jungles of Ecuador, Ecuador where they're going to try and reach <clears throat> some tribes that typically cut the heads off of their enemies after battle and shrunk their heads and kept them in the house for little decorations on the mantle. And then Jim and four of his friends were killed by those tribe members. And so what do you do as a young widow with a 10-month-old daughter? Elizabeth decided to go live with that tribe for the next five years. Francis Chan starts a little church in his living room and it blows up, becomes a mega church. And one day he says, you know what? This is, this is not the body of Christ. People just come to be spectators and watch a celebrity pastor and left it all behind. Start doing itinerant ministry. Start a little house church again. Oh yeah, when he wrote a book that drove some of us crazy called Crazy Love and made initially $2 million off of it, he gave it all away just so he wouldn't be tempted. See, one of the things that happens when the ordinary becomes normal to us is the radicals vanish. Blessings are rare, radicals are rare, and satisfaction in Christ becomes rare as well. See what I mean? You think about what is going to um, interest you for the rest of this day. Just think about today. This afternoon, we're uh, hopping in the car with uh, two other couples that are good friends of ours. Once a year, we go away for several days together. and really looking forward to that time. We stay up late and talk about anything and everything. And it's a sweet, sweet time. So I've, we got to go home and eat lunch soon. I got to quit preaching soon so we can do that. Um, and then we're off on our way up to the mountains. And then I'll do this and I'll do that. Just, I mean, just think about what's going to matter to you today or to you this week. Is it going to be that Jesus Christ is your all in all or is it your family, your wealth, your job, your career, your leisure, your vacations, your getaways like the, this to the mountain. What, what, if I put a table up here and I said, take out a piece of paper and write on it everything you're willing to give up for Jesus. How short or long would the list be? I know how short mine would be. But the problem is, with an ordinary kind of Christianity that we accept as normal. Jesus is simply one more thing that gives us a few high moments. But we don't want to get carried away. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, did you ever ask the question, why in the world God left you here? Did he leave you here? Did he leave me here so that I could get married and have a family? 
Did he leave me here so that I could learn how to build some cabinets? Or did he leave me here to be a preacher? He leave you here so that you can experience some amazing things in life. And at the end of your life, be recounted at your funeral. Or did he leave you here to leave a mark for Jesus? And brothers and sisters, we have to be honest, just looking at the landscape of the American church across this great nation, things are not well. And it's not just the church down the street and the people in it. There's a reason that the body of Christ in America needs a fresh work of grace. Important things have become ultimate things. And ultimate things have become so-so. How are you leaving your mark for Christ? Listen, I understand we're up and down. You and I, we're all up and down. I'm, I'm not talking about the moment by moment shortcomings and then, oh, I wish I'd have done that. I'm just talking about our... our you, listen, you and I are short for this life, right? I'm closer to the end than some of you, uh, further than some of you, but we are short for this life. The Bible says that we are a vapor. We are here today and gone tomorrow. Are we simply co- collecting accolades for ourselves or are, are we here to live and die for Jesus? Are we here to live and die for him? And that question, when it's answered, may tell us just how well, how much or how little we need revival. Leonard Ravenhill said that we will not have revival as long as we are content to live without it. As long as the ordinary seems normal to us, we will not have it. Are you content? Let's pray. Blow through us, Lord in us, in spite of us, for us, for your great glory, our good, our transformation, our hope. We're not talking this morning about salvation. We're talking about transformation as a saved people. We're talking about being made right with you through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're, t- we're talking about making much of the blood of Jesus Christ. When we ride on that school bus tomorrow, when we're in the classroom, when we're at lunch break with our um, colleagues at work, when we're stopped as we walk down our street and talk to a neighbor, I'm not talking about that we are if we're revived and we're sharing the gospel with everybody we meet, I'm just thinking that we are thinking about Jesus many more moments than we are currently. That the next vacation loses its luster in light of the, of the next calling that you lay in our hearts. That the next advancement at work is, is not the same as the next assignment that you have for us. That our satisfaction in our nicely paneled homes, in our sleek new cars, in our 
incredible vacations and getaways and that our good friendships that we have, wondrous as those things are, that they're not what brings us meaning in life, that we realize that's not what we're here for. We are here for you. And may the world know it that lives around us in Jesus' name.